This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is your host, Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Montclair, New Jersey. And this is Phil Lawson-Shanks calling in from Plano, Texas. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's start to get to know you a little bit. How did you get started and uh, where you're at in your career? Sure. Well, how long have we got? Because it's uh, it's a long and spotted history. And I, I, I do a lot of speaking, but I don't usually talk about this part. And I, I maybe I should, but obviously my accent, I'm not a native. I grew up, I was born grew up in, was, in the I, UK. I was this yeah. close. I was so convinced. Just a little bit, just a little bit, yeah. I was born and grew up in the UK, and I discovered later in life that I'm dyslexic, which explained an awful lot about the confusion I had during school. And in, in the UK system at that point, uh, we would finish school at 16, go to college, then university. I, I had a very confusing time at school. I was invited to leave college to, after being there for about a year, and then just went into, into industry, I think. I was released to industry from the education system. So I jumped around, I did lots of different things, but I ended ended up working at a company that owned and operated all the airports in the UK, British Airports Authority. It's, it's gone since, but did some interesting interesting jobs. During that time, they, they were, you know, all of the airports had their own mainframe, an old ICL mainframe. And you can tell how old I am now by talking about that. <laughs> and they were having a lot of graduates come in and uh, doing work in the IT group, uh, you're programming COBOL and QuickBuild and, and Fortran and the like. And they were obviously very skilled, but they didn't understand the, the business aspects of the industry that they were moving into. So some people had, a, had the forethought of looking to the industry, uh, the, the company themselves, and given the opportunity for people to apply for a training position of a year. And uh, out of the, the several hundred across the whole of the country that applied, eight of us, I was one of the eight that were selected and uh, spent a year, well, actually not quite the full year, learning everything from programming COBOL and QuickBuild and Fortran. And, and then we had various secondments within the, the business doing things. One that, that I took on was to choose, identify and select uh, a local area networking product. And from the choices of Banyan, if you remember Banyan, land manager, land server, and Novell. So I chose Novell, and uh, we ended up deploying that across the industry. So at that point in time, there was that migration from the mainframe to the mini systems. Yeah, we learned, you know, I, I programmed a PDP-11 and all of that. It was... Uh, <laughs> But then LAN uh, servers were sort of coming up. PC servers were on the on the rise. So I ended this is up what, running. This is, this is mid-80s at this point? This is mid-80s, yeah, mid-80s. So started deploying Novell, and uh, we, would, we were sort of offloading applications that would take it all night to run on the ICLs, that we would then moving them down to systems. And, and to be frank, most of, the, most of the systems we put in were print servers because it was uh, just easier. You know, there was a migration from dot matrix to, to laser printers. Again, I'm really showing my age here. 
but I'm trying to I'm trying to determine whether I should even make a dot matrix joke because I'm not sure any of our listeners would even know what that is. But no, there used to be not. these little pieces of paper on the side of the printers. Exactly. That, oh, yeah. The and holes the, the that used to across anyway, them. Yeah, exactly. It's not worth it. So anyway, did all of that. And uh, I was then recruited from that role to go and work for a European manufacturer called Tulip Computers. Again, no longer there. They they touted themselves as the, the European Compaq. Again, Compaq is no longer around. But so it did some fantastic things there. And it's I only one common thread with all these companies that aren't around that I'm I know. picking up on. Uh, yeah. So let me think back on that. Let's let's not go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> Or maybe I had the foresight to jump before, but anyway, maybe, maybe did things there. I set up a training vision. I, I went over to Dusseldorf and to Rotterdam and, and did some training. I was certified as a, a, a Novell instructor and I was configuring, installing, and I, I built a system that enabled us to basically, if you remember, you probably don't, but in the early days of Novell, there was 50 odd disks, floppy disks you had to install in the server to set it up. I automated that with some some programming. So you literally just put in the one key disk and everything just built. So we were able to take an order for a server and within three hours, have it configured and shipped out the door. So next day delivery. So LAN in a can, we called it. So which was, which was interesting. It's also, if you think about it from a timing perspective to say that that was early on, now, now everybody expects you know, a yes. computer to be at their doorstep instantaneously in, in our new kind of Amazon Prime culture oh, exactly. uh, that's applied across every industry. If, I, I, again, I, I, don't, I, I don't know the, the, the context that our audience has for this sort of thing, but that seems like at that time would have been revolutionary compared to what the traditional kind of manufacturing build times, not even manufacturing, yeah. just installation times. I remember the early days of Windows when you had 32 floppy disks and you had to sit there and, and install it. And it's basically days long events just to install an operating system. So good thinking. Yeah, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah, I met an individual the other day, and he was a computer scientist in the UK. And all what he did for the 10 years that he worked at uh, BAA was press buttons. Yep. That was his job. After school, you went into special trades. How did you end up picking computing? Oh, I, it's funny. I, I, I ended up as a security guard, basically TSA. It's slightly different in the UK. Europe had some different issues. As, and I won't go into it in too much detail as well, this might get flagged. But the training we had was fascinating. We worked with the bomb disposal units and things like that. So, But uh, I did that for a while. And I say the, the BA decided they wanted to recruit from internal to basically see if anyone had the aptitude. They would teach them how to bring them into the IT group. So everything just clicked. It just seemed very easy for me. I'm a very, very visual thinker. So I can visualize the electron flow in a chip or all of that. So... And pattern recognition is something that comes very easy to me. Spelling, not so much, because that's a two-dimensional. Right. And that's and that's the thing. Is that really the is the dyslexia kind of the kind of demarcation point? Like you didn't have exposure to the that that sort of thing when you were in grade school and no. before before university. And it, it was difficult because you had no idea why the things that came easy to to others were difficult for you. And then once you were just introduced to this sort of computing methodology where you had to visualize these things that would be incredibly complex for, for people that were surpassing you in, in, in the things that one would think were, were mundane just came naturally. Is that kind of yeah, the, the idea of exactly the dyslexic it. mind? Yeah, amazing. Exactly. And then there was a little pre a brief time when I was at college. We, we 
least time on the, the county mainframe. And uh, we had uh, teletype. So I was programming and it was producing type that actually punch holes in the, in the tape. But every time I spot something wrong, I'd have to then put in the delete that last command. So my programs were incredibly long, as you can imagine. So right. and they didn't run very well. But anyway, once I got beyond that, but typing is interesting because instead, if you if you think there's lots of different views on dyslexia, but essentially it comes down to the fact that you can't visualize anything in two dimensions. You can visualize in three dimensions. So you can't visualize a word, but you can visualize the image of the word. So when you're trying to spell a word and type, write it down, you have to think, well, what letter is that? Where does that come? Where do I start that on the page? With a pen, but in typing, it's a three-dimensional movement in space. So it's, and also spell checkers and Grammarly and. And is that some? Is that something to this day that that you struggle with, or do, is it something oh, that you I, especially yeah, I, train yourself to kind of work around? Yeah, you you develop coping mechanisms. So yes, so just just move forward. But in terms of the the visualization, that's still that's still. Yeah, it serves me greatly in what it's, I do. It's fascinating because you would yeah. think that it's it's a way to almost recruit from the computing industry and and you compute almost towards dyslexia because it just it, it because it, it it's almost a tell that you would yes. like you may succeed in our world certainly in the world of programming and this kind of you know three dimensional visualization yeah. by virtue of of having dyslexia so and structured thinking yeah. so GCHQ the the British equivalent to the NSA they recruit heavily from the dyslexic community yes. because that that different type of thinking serves them well Pattern, and very strong pattern recognition, which sort of helped me find the next interesting thing to move to throughout my career. So anyway, did all, all of right. that, worked for a Dutch company. That was fun. I was uh, recruited to go and work at Compaq. And uh, I was actually the first person they'd hired who hadn't, didn't have a university degree, which was right. interesting. Yeah. So did a lot of interesting things there, a lot of systems engineering, consultancy, and uh, was- So is that what brought you to the US? It was, yeah. I was I was offered either a place in to go and run something in Dusseldorf, sorry, in Munich, in the European headquarters, or into Houston, which was the global headquarters. So, and I'd always had this thing about living in America. Most of British television is American, so I wanted that Brady Bunch, Double Door, Sunken Lounge, all of that. I actually got that, but that was very appealing to me. So I dragged my family over from the UK. We went to live in Houston and I ran some things there. And that was, that was a lot of fun. Spent a lot of time with Microsoft, launched Windows 2000 for the company. That was, that was exciting. And just, just jumped around. I found lots of interesting technologies, saw the need for Wi-Fi. We, we worked on Starbucks, identifying Starbucks as, as the next place, that middle place from the home and the office, the third place. And launched so that. So you invented the edge, the first, uh, the first well, edge computing. We're Starbucks. Yeah, right? we can get. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And that that was a lot of fun. We we did the the merge with HP, and I, it was just different for me. Though the culture was different at that point. At that point in time, HP is different entity now. But I liked the the cowboy mentality of seeing ten opportunities in the market and going after them, knowing you'd probably get three, but the revenue you derive from those three would more than offset any sunk cost in in those other seven. I ended up leaving with the the CEO of Compaq. So back in the, remember WorldCom, all those guys, they, you know, bad things happened. They went to jail and they approached uh, the CEO of Compaq to fix it. So I went along with him and four others and ended up moving to in the old U-Net building, 
that was that became headquarters. So I met some fascinating people like Vin you've had on your your show yeah. and Henry Sinrak who invented SIP and all um, amazing brains. Right. Yeah, and, I mean that uh, and that was really that that was your first foray into an actual you could not find a oh, better exactly. network company at that time than yeah. UUNet. UUNet was the gold standard for all, for oh, all exactly. networks. Yeah. So it was we we renamed WorldCom back to MCI and it had all of those assets. But I remember I was commuting. There was at the time BMW were were producing these little uh, vignettes where they had a particular actor driving a car around their different directors, and they would take hours to download. And and late one night I was there and I thought, oh, I just I'll see if there's any new ones. And I downloaded one and it was. You know, what took hours was down in less than a minute. And I thought, that's interesting. And then I, I met with some brilliant people uh, who I said, explain how this works. Teach me the internet. And after a day and a half, I said, that's it. My brain is full. I can't take any more. And, and I'll give you their names. They're amazing people you should have on their show. But I did a lot of things there, which was fascinating. And I, I, I've always had an interest in, in media and content. In fact, I actually wanted to be a stuntman when I was at school. I've got a crazy passion for doing stupid things. But I hurt my back in a bad rugby accident. So I, I couldn't do any sports. And I've subsequently done crazy things, which we can talk about. We'll get, we'll get to the crazy things section of the, uh, the podcast sure. in a bit. Yeah, but I, I saw the the need to move content over the internet, and so I came up with a plan, proposed it, uh, was allowed to create a startup within the new MCI, and went on a you know, basically looking around, find, cherry picking the best people that were still there, and then bought a couple of companies and created a thing called Digital Media Services, which is now Verizon Digital Media Services. So we did that from just me. Within six months, I had 100 people. We had we did some fascinating work with uh, some Hollywood names, some digital dailies for some interesting movies, and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. But then we became the, the plan was always to to monetize those assets and sell them to Quest or to Verizon. Verizon took the they they acquired it, and that was very much a tele, at that point very much a telecom company, and that didn't interest me so much. Sure. So I left and, and went with the chief strategy officer to work at Savis. We were doing a turnaround of Savis. That was fascinating. And uh, I was looking for a, a grid type computing environment so that we could, we could tolerate server failure. And I found this little company called VMware that was sort of just nascent. Did a deal with them. We, we devised the first virtual machine as a service. So, you so then you invented the cloud. Got it. Well, I did have an idea about that later. I invented some other things. I got some patents for things, but uh, I'm not laying claim to that. You invented creating a computer like basically exponentially quicker than anyone else had. And then you invented the edge and now you invented the cloud. I think the, the dyslexic minds are clearly the geniuses of our time. Well, because people don't, I don't understand the structure and, and sequential thinking. So I just jump and go and do things. Means they look it's like incredible. they work. It's, and I don't say, I don't take right. no for an answer. So anyway, did a lot of things there. That was fun. Subsequent to that, oh, we, we had a restructuring. I, I was, I was, I took a year off fully paid, but got very, very bored. So built a, a photography service for car dealers. I've got a whole system where we take high, high resolution cars. And anyway, that was, that was, that was your, that was your, that was your hobby. Your hobby yeah, was, was it was photography. It was <laughs> your, like, uh, your hobby was creating Carvana. 
Yeah, yeah. Before, <laughs> well before, yeah. But then I, I did a stint at Alcatel Lucent, which was really interesting. Came up with some ideas there. I'm not going to, because anything I say now, you're going to say I invented. But It's so, true. I mean, I'm not it was, saying it because you're you're bloviating. I'm saying it because it's actually true. I think you are like, you, there's not nearly enough patents listed on your LinkedIn. This is crazy. Yeah, that, that was fun. I saw the need to... Um, virtualize the stack, the telecom stack. So we did that. And that was, that was interesting, but I just, the, the travel to Paris, all of that, it was different. They have different regulations. Um, this has become the most bourgeois conversation at all. Uh, I couldn't handle the travel to Paris. It was just too much for me. <laughs> it was just too much. Yeah. So we actually, I did a startup, which was, which was fascinating, but that didn't work which is, I think is you should always have one under your belt, one that doesn't work. Right. Um, and then I took a CTO role at a hosting company and that was a lot of fun. That was, again, another turnaround of fix. I like fixing complicated problems. Did that for a year or so. And then a friend of mine reached out and said he was, he'd just joined this company called Edge Connects and they were going to fix the internet and convince me to come and, and join. And that was a lot of fun. That was because at that point, there were about nine points in the, in America where all the internet traffic tromboned back and forth from. And so and Netflix had just bought a new catalog of content, which was basically crushing things, that spinning wheel of death. Right. So we set about buying properties and designing and deploying smaller scale data centers, you know, two meg, three meg, four meg in various markets and then bringing peering and, and just basically changing internet flow, which was a lot of fun. In fact, in the first 24 months, we built 23 of them, which was manic. But that's that was, manic. But I mean, that's that was a, a again, it, it makes perfect sense since you previously had invented the edge. Now oh, you get to you build go. all the data centers. It's perfect. Yeah, true. No, I won't lay claim to that at all, but that was fun. And then I did that for you know a couple of years and always looking at new technologies, new ways of doing things. But it became really apparent to me that, oh, and, and the hyperscalers, they, they'd been buying vast amounts of land out in Oregon and North Carolina and building enormously sophisticated big data centers where land and power was cheap. But then they realized that latency was an issue for them. So they wanted instances of their platforms closer. So we were doing that for them and just looking at how they were laying out their, their footprints. Their, you would always design a data center or a suite to, mac, to the maximum cooling capacity. And the technology of the day was cracks and cores and, and so on. So that, that really limited the footprint. And knowing what was happening with the chipsets, the, the emergence of GPUs, it became apparent that whatever we built for these guys, within 18 months, they would want to double their power or certainly increase their power significantly. And you can always bring more power into a building as long as you do the right things for the community and whatever. But your cooling is a fixed entity that's going to be offset by the the capitalization of the building over so many years but you can't really change that so i started looking at different things and that that took me down to a path i'd, I'd met andrew the ceo of aligned before we we'd been on panels together and you know really enjoyed enjoyed him as a as a human being and it just came out we were at some imason's event and he asked me what i was doing whether i was bored and i was so, <laughs> of course you're bored. You haven't invented like a, a critical part of society in months. Well, I don't think I've done that for a while. But anyway, so he invited me to come across and and I've been doing this over here and really enjoying just changing again how how you can maximize the floor space for, for what's coming for GPUs with supercomputers now, all this 
all the things that are happening because traditional data center layouts they you might get 25 kilowatts in in a middle couple of cabinets but on average it's like six whereas what we do now is up to 50 or beyond if we go water cooled if we loop those into the the cray systems we can go up to 100 or was it 250 kilowatts a cabinet so it's crazy capacity and and for me that's that's really interesting to to help you know, the true people are changing how we all live and breathe. And, you know, this Zoom, the change from last year where everyone's working from home or remotely, how Teams and Google, you know, meet and, and all of these things had to just dramatically increase. So we think about that and we think, oh, it must be the internet. But the, the servers behind that, the service this are extraordinary. So being able to help them deliver their assets more readily that that's exciting and if i get bored again i'll do something else but no no i'm really you hear that andrew he's on the yeah. market <laughs> no I'm, I'm really enjoying this this is this is probably one of the the most the most fun i've had in a very long time if there's one thing or one word to describe phil lawson shanks that is innovation quite a journey in the last 40 years from being a security guard and pretty much touching every single element of data infrastructure if there are one or two core lessons that you have learned that you can share with the audience, what would those be? What would you do differently, knowing which today? Granted that you've got uh, a ridiculous amount of patents and that you've invented edge and cloud and God knows what else. What would you do differently, Phil, if you knew what you- I, if I, I don't know what I'd do differently. I, I've really enjoyed what I've done. I've always had the, the latitude to think differently and just come up with crazy ideas. I've had some fantastic CEOs that I worked for. What have I done differently? No, I, I maybe, yeah, I don't, I don't thrive in large corporates. So I like the, the scrappiness of, of the startup, the turnaround, the smaller entity, and like looking at bringing it to that, that stage at that pivot point where it's going to become something enormous and then and look for the next thing. So one of the I things probably would have uh, taken skydiving up a bit earlier. That's probably what it would have. <laughs> oh, we haven't gotten to the skydiving yet. One of the things that that I heard over and over again when you described your that your career path was fun. And I think that a lot of the kind of younger generation, maybe the the generation that entered the workforce in the last five or 10 years, doesn't necessarily equate with work is the idea of fun and how Mm. much more productive you can be when you like what you're doing and when you have the freedom and the confidence to kind of blaze your own path, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing and how much, how much, you know, runway you can essentially build yourself if you don't get trapped in that kind of corporate methodology of just kind of doing what you're told and, and looking at things with, with blinders on and just doing your job and punching your card and, 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 and going home. How much of that do you think was based on you kind of kind of pushing some of the bosses or, or, or leadership in the organizations that you worked in? Uh, and how much of it was just by happenstance, you happened to be at the right place at the right time and the right person noticed you? What's the, what, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you think of that? Mm, that's just, and I think that's it's a trap that I think a lot of uh, people who've, who've 
achieved a modicum of success where they attribute their success to everything that they've done. And I think this context is everything, but it's the, it's the ability just recognize that and jump. So being prepared to you know, buckle down and do what needs to be done, but also if there's an opportunity to do it differently and to convince whoever that power broker is that there's a better way or a different way, or if I just throw that away and do this over here. So communication skills are important, being able to read people and timing. But I, I've just been incredibly fortunate. Um, and uh, I have an accent, so people think I'm smart. Oh, no question about it. I can I can only imagine the Texas twang that you are covering up with that. Oh yes. that, that Madonna-like British accent. <laughs> you, you you mentioned when you went to work for Hewlett Packard and Compaq, you were the first one of the very first employees that didn't have a college degree. <laughs> where where do you think we are? We we've got more liberal art degrees that we are issuing these days, and. There is education has not changed since the second industrial revolution. Do we need to change and, and start thinking more around the lines of trade schools? Mm. Um, that, that's that's I think about that a lot, actually. I'm struggling to remember the guy's name. There's a British guy in education. He he has a lot of TED talks. He he talks about how the education system is the perfect vehicle for creating university professors. And if you, if you extend that all the way out, that's what you're going to become. Now, having said that, education's vitally important. In fact, one of the things that I, I spend a lot of time reading and, and learning, because there are gaps in my knowledge base, which I'm constantly looking to fill. And I always thought that if I get to the point where I have to retire, which I hope I never have to do, I'll probably go and take some, some college courses, because it just because it'd be interesting. There are some things that I'd really like to learn. But I do think there's a place where we we should have more secondments. In fact, one of the things that, that we do, we have a lot of interns in our company. So we pull them from all different walks of life. And it's more an aptitude. And I from that, that is very, very personal. If you're prepared to learn and prepared to, you know, actually step forward and, and don't expect things to come your way, then I'll spend as much time as possible with you. And so we have a lot of interns like that. And I, you know, not being ageist and you're the Gen X and the I'm on the Gen X and the millennials and the and the the Z's or the Z's. I can say that. Oh, yeah. Um, there's, there's, I mean, a lot of people, but even for our industry, there's, if you look at the makeup of the data center market, it's, it's people who look like me for the most part. And, and unless we change that, we're going to age ourselves out of the industry. So we're constantly trying to pull in uh, you know, more diverse, younger people. In, and it's exciting. And the data centers are truly the engines of the, the fourth industrial revolution. And there's no so much going on that uh, you can do. Enter the nomad futurist. You just dictated exactly what our purpose for being is. And I think, look, I think anyone that, that listens to your story can be nothing but inspired by how fast you, you've been able to kind of reinvent yourself as a, 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 a huge thinker in our world, in large part because you were given the space to, to, to kind of think differently uh, about the way things are done. And what what I am envisioning is like a real benefit to our industry for that sort of thinking. Like, because it's not 
finance. And it's not this kind of spread. There's a lot of spreadsheet manipulation that goes along in our industry, of course, with uh, with M&A and private equity and all that stuff. But in general, there's such a wide breadth of skill set and capability in so many different ways to achieve things like cooling efficiencies and and productivity increases on compute workloads and and reducing of latencies and, and things that you were able to see and solve for in ways that are that are incredibly creative. That's another thing people don't necessarily attribute to our industry is the amount of creativity that you can express in 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 what you're doing. So uh, again, I, I I the the one thing that I that I would be incredibly uh, upset with is if if you manage to go into some other industry. I think we are the perfect landing spot for your type of of creative mind, and and I think it's 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 certainly inspirational to the, ne- the next generation. Oh, thank you. I hope so. It's yeah. And again, so I think my details are here. If anyone wants to reach out and talk to me afterwards, I'd be happy to do that. I don't think we do enough mentoring in in our industry. What advice would you give the younger generation that's trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up? I've always taken the view that I intend never to grow up. Growing old is inevitable, but growing up is optional. So, and I think that mindset is important, but I think you need to find what you love doing. It's an old adage, you find what you love and then do it. If someone's prepared to pay you to do what you love doing, that's the perfect role. But I think the way things are today, technology is, is the underpinning of everything we do. There's, there's, there are, jobs, there's industries, there's opportunities that we can't even predict at this point in time. If you think back, when was it? Uh, only 2007, the iPhone came out. Everything's changed since then. Everything's changed since then. Think what's coming next. There's so many new things happening. So if you, had, if you have a passion, explore the opportunities that are out there. Watch TED Talks, see what MIT are publishing. Just devour information and find something that resonates with you and put something forward. See if there are people out there who have a, a similar mindset or you can go and work with someone. And and there, there used to be like five, six years ago, everyone was like hoping that they would be acquired by Facebook or Google. Well, that's not the case anymore. I think there is enough interesting entities bubbling up. Private equity has so much money. There's so many incubators out there. Go and surround yourselves with people that are like-minded who want to change the world. That's, I've always taken this view, and this sounds very grandiose, but what we do help. is so significant to where we're going as a, as a, as a species. And again, one of the things that, that, that I feel very passionate about is the environmental side of what we do. And that's, that's part of, that's the underpinning of the ethos of, the, of Aligned is, is our sustainability, environmental laws and all of that. So it's vitally important that, you know, whatever you do, you, have, you leave a light touch on the environment, but since so, I'm very hippie now, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> so, so, so everybody's talking about uh, carbon neutrality. What's your stance on that? And what are you doing to, to make that happen? Sorry, I missed that on the cloud neutrality? No, carbon. Oh, carbon. Sorry, big one. Yeah. So we, we have a program. We've been working on a program for that for a while. So we're the, the company that owns us, Macquarie, that's one of their key cornerstones. So everything we do is about sustainability. The way we procure our equipment, the way we design, build, and deploy our technology, the cooling that we use uses significantly less energy than anything else on the market to give a much higher yield. So everything we do, all our energy that we we deliver to our customers is renewed, renewable energy. We're actually in the process of documenting our statement for our carbon neutral stance. And a lot of people are talking about 2020, uh, 2030 rather, we're hoping to bring that 
much closer to be fully carbon neutral. But that's there's so many elements that that touches from your supply chain, how you operate, um, even delivering equipment to the site. Moreover, it's it's we're looking at technologies that actually remove carbon from the atmosphere and have those situated with our infrastructure. So it's. It's very, very important. We, we need to do this. I mean, energy that, that our industry uses is enormous. Over a year ago, it was anticipated that by 2025, we'd be using as much energy as India as a subcontinent. I think that's sort of out the window. We're probably already doing that now. Absolutely. So where do you get and how do you get your best ideas? I, I sort of switch off my frontal lobe by doing silly things like jumping out of planes or here we go or this going is the part down, i've been waiting for or the cresta run you're know, going down <laughs> a, a, a luge driving a motorbike fast yeah i just i let my imagination run wild and i i i'm interested in everything so there's lots of lots of opportunities out there to to pick and choose from different ideas of doing things differently i was thinking i was thinking I, the best ideas that i have come to me in the shower this guy's jumping out of planes and 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 going down mountains yeah, there's actually a, people talk about meditation or whatever, but it, what you're doing, you're you're basically disassociate or you're removing the focus from your frontal cortex. Yeah, I you think it's about breaking the barrier. Yeah, I think but it's about breaking by, the barrier. Yeah, you can do that by by frightening yourself very very. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've done that a few times. <laughs> See, you, you've done that to me a few times. It's also how you get rid of the hiccups, ironically. Mm, absolutely, I know that. So. So let's talk a little bit about how do you continue to learn? What are some of the mediums that you use to learn about technologies mm. and, you know, stuff that you're engaged in? Yeah. Well, one of the is sort of self-serving in this for you guys, but podcasts, I, I just devour podcasts all the time. I, I usually play them at uh, one and a half times speed just to, to get them through. It's almost like speed reading through my ears, which is interesting. But I've been told that I speak really, really fast. So I'd be amazed to see if you only hear Nabil's part when you do that on, on our podcast. I guess I should try it. Yeah, but yeah, I just, I devour information. I'm constantly reading things or I, I'm on the plane a lot. So I, I download a lot of uh, podcasts and, and books and I, I find TED Talks very interesting because they're, they're so diverse so that you often come up with different ideas for doing things just by listening to how other people are approaching their world. But, uh, so as an innovator, what's uh, what's next what, from a technology standpoint? Is it autonomous vehicles? Is it is it some other thing that I can't even think about that you invented 20 years ago? Yeah, um, well, I think I think COVID sort of held us back a bit on autonomous vehicles. So the business sure. model would be that you'd have to have a shared asset base, which is a shame because I, I think we were very close to being there. I still think that there's that the next big thing that's going to be impactful would be something like a smart spectacles. And we, we they keep talking about that, that augmented reality, but the ability to have an overlay of the world to see, so I'd see your face, it would give me background on you, or I'd, although that's probably going to be hijacked by the ad market. So you'd be walking <laughs> yeah, exactly. past. Exactly. Yeah. It'll yeah. just give you my Amazon shopping cart. Exactly. So I think that's that's going to be interesting. I do think that what COVID has taught corporations is that they can trust their workforce not to be in one building. So if we see that diaspora of, of our workforce into places where they want to live and work, obviously there has to be good internet and things like Starlink that Elon Musk's involved in, that's going to be interesting to have that connectivity everywhere. So there are some key things along those lines. Um, 
high, high bandwidth connectivity on any medium and any device, the ability to work anywhere, having a blend of augmented reality for, for these sort of conversations to have that. And I think they're closer than we think. It's just we're, we keep sort of going forward. It's like one step forward, two steps back at the moment. Is, is the Delta variant going to make a shift? Do we have to do these things? Um, some of these buzzwords in the market, like artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, IoT. Can you just pick up three that, in your opinion, are real? Well, IoT is real. And IoT connected over 5G is becoming very, very real. So but all that data, whether it's processed locally or then pushed back and have some meaningful context. So machine learning is is going to be key to that, to make sense and, and defy uh, define the pack of the patterns that are emerging. So it's, I think that's that's very, very real. And we're seeing a lot of industry adopt that. I think what's also, uh, and we didn't talk about it, but I think the circular economy is going to be very interesting as well. Taking those products end of life, because our churn is, trim, in our industry, everything we do, it's like, I want the latest. So I, Apple bring out a new phone, I'm going to go and buy it. But that existing technology, being able to reuse that, either the components or in another country to recycle that, that technology, I think that's, that's very, very important. Yeah, I, I, I always like asking this question. And that is many science fictions, they present a dark vision of the future. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of humanity? I am always optimistic. I think it's one of my drivers. I always look forward. So I'm more of, and it's interesting, if you think of science fiction, there's the, and I love I love Star Wars, but that's a very dystopian worldview. Star Trek is much more optimistic. I'm not really a Trekkie, but I'm, I think technology could bring us all together in a much more efficient fashion. We're, we're essentially a tribal species. So once you get beyond a certain number, it sort of starts to break down. But I do think that technology can, can help. I remember just when, in the early days, I, I got an Xbox. So the work I did with Microsoft and my kids, I was probably a bad parent. I let them play Halo way too young. But they then surpassed me in, in expertise by, you know, by droves. But then when Xbox Live came out, that was interesting because then even though they were in their room, but they were talking to their friends. And there's a, soci- there's a social element to it. Exactly. And that sort of expand. So as long as there's that, you still have that physical connection, because I think it's very important for us as humans to have that physical connection. I don't see a problem with with that social media and social communications. I think that the, the danger is you can get into your own echo chamber and it can be perverted, as we've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's a delicate balance, right? My kids now go to dinner uh, or or get together with their cousins, and they'll just they'll be sitting next to each other, talking to each other on the iPad through one of those games as yeah. the veneer of it. So there is, there is a the lost art of conversation amongst our youth that I think has only been accelerated through through COVID and the virtualization of school and and things like that. That that I think I think hopefully will will be rectified uh, if they're able to. So. We tend to it's like a, a pendulum. We tend to pivot. Yeah, right. in whatever element. So we'll get to that middle ground. Yeah, that's that, that's the hope. Uh, I have I have one of our final questions. Let's say you have been one of the things that that I try to trumpet consistently with the fact that we are the generation that is kind of required to to bring the excitement of our industry to the next generation because we were there. So we have experienced life before the digital. Uh, yes. kind of infrastructure revolution and we've experienced life 
afterwards. And we, that's why it's all kind of magical and new to us. And that's why it's so exciting to us. And, and they, I don't want to sound like Walter Matthau, but kids these days have this certain expectation of technology that, that it doesn't have that kind of same magical feeling to it. So given the fact that you had the experience incredibly early on in kind of the, the creation of computers as a fundamental way that, that we did business and then certainly have now evolved, is there something that surprised you about the evolution of, of computers and the way we use them from that, that kind of first experience you had from the, the, the kind of the airport authority through automating, just provisioning what would be a, a PC or a workstation or whatever to now having more compute in your, the palm of your hand than you ever dreamed of when we were working at, at, at that company? Yeah, I, I'm constantly amazed, frankly, constantly amazed. There's all those stories about the, the, the iPhone has more computing power than we NASA used and all of those things. There's right. so many tropes that you can bring out. I just think it's going to continue. And I, I'm, I'm constantly excited about what we're going to see in the next 5, 10, 20 years. Having even screens embedded in the walls, having, having that level of contextual, you walk into a room and it knows you and it, it, it presents the information pertinent to you. And I'd love to be involved in all of that. So you know, I think everybody thinks that they're, well, maybe not so much, but uh, certainly I, in my experience is most people think this is the most exciting time they've ever, you know, in human history. But I think this truly is. I think we have the potential to really do something significant here. Nothing, there's never been anything like the internet ever before in our history. Um, thanks, Vint. Yes, thanks, Vint. Yeah. <laughs> So and, once he gets his intergalactic IP with all of that stuff that's going out and finding new planets and solar systems. Yeah, it's, it, this is the most exciting time for me. And I'm, I have a constant childlike excitement and expectation about what we can do and where we can go. And, and you've certainly made, made our industry and our world a better place. So thank you. And, and thank you for being with us. This has been uh, oh, a, thank an you. awesome this was conversation. Fun. Yeah. yeah, lovely. Thank you. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.